19, and we'll be starting at verse 6. So that's the last book of the Bible. Please open up your Bible. Revelation 19, starting from verse 6. Reading. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Well, that's our reading for today. May God add his blessing to it. Good morning, everybody. Well, do please keep your Bible open at that passage. Just one announcement before we begin. We're having our carol service in two weeks' time on Sunday the 5th, so do be thinking about who you're going to invite. It will be a child-friendly occasion, and Alita's going to say a little bit more about that at the end of the service. But for now, as I say, please have our Bibles open at Revelation 19, and uh, I'll ask for the Lord's help. Well, may the, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, the Bible is a book about weddings. Uh, I wonder if you knew that. Was there a question about that in the exams this week? There ought to have been, because there are 19 of them. And uh, very significantly, there is a wedding at the beginning of the Bible, and there's another wedding here at the end. In fact, it's rather interesting this. The first recorded word spoken by a human being was spoken at a wedding. So in the book of Genesis, Adam sees Eve for the first time, and one writer has suggested that a modern paraphrase of Adam's first words would be, wow, she is absolutely stunning. Whether that's right or not, the message of that first wedding is that marriage is God's idea. It's designed by him at the creation of the world, and it is absolutely central to God's purpose for the human race, because throughout the Bible, we find God explaining how it is that he wants to relate to his people, 
And over and over again, we find God saying, um, I don't want to relate to my people merely as a king relates to his subjects or as a sheep, a shepherd relates to his sheep. Now, again and again, God says, I want to relate to you as a husband relates to a wife. I want a relationship with you that is as permanent and as exclusive and as intimate as that. That is the relationship with God that all of us were created for. It's actually the reason we're here. It is the purpose of your life and mine. So it's no surprise that at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we find here another wedding. I guess at first sight it's not especially clear what's happening. And that's because, as we've seen in our series, that Revelation uses images that are instantly familiar to us to teach us important things we might not otherwise understand. And although we're all familiar with weddings, this is an unusual wedding because it has a unique purpose. And the purpose of this particular wedding is to tell us where all of human history is going and how to prepare ourselves for what lies ahead. So come with me, if you will, to verse 6 where we find that there's a terrific multitude in heaven and they're all shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So John, the human author of Revelation, has taken us to the end of time, to the end of human history, And in heaven, there's tremendous excitement and rejoicing because there's going to be a wedding. And uh, whilst it might be fashionable in some circles today to say that marriage is unpopular, uh, unworkable, even unnecessary, put a royal wedding on television and the viewing figures will tell us exactly the opposite. Everyone loves a royal wedding. And in our passage, that's what we've got. This is a royal wedding. Uh, The groom is Christ, the king. Uh, Revelation often refers to him as it does here, as the lamb. The bride is the church. Uh, That is the, the people of God throughout the ages. And then at the end of verse 7, we're told that the bride has made herself ready to meet the groom. Now, I need to tell you that in the book of Revelation, there's only one way that this wedding can actually go forward. And that is if the ungodly world has first been removed. Now, of course, that hasn't happened yet. And there's a reason for that. Because one of the ways that the bride prepares herself for the wedding is by enduring the persecution and scorn of the ungodly world. And in Revelation, the royal wedding between Christ and his bride doesn't take place until the world that persecutes the people of God 
has been removed. That's what the chapters before chapter 19 are all about. At the end of time, we're told that God is going to judge all those who have not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, We saw something of that, didn't we, last week in chapter 14. And it's only when that has happened that this tremendous wedding between Christ and the church will take place. But now look please with me again at verse 7. Because it tells us that in this present age, while the enemies of God are still around, we're not simply waiting for the wedding day. We've got things to do. What should we be doing? Well, look again at verse 7 at the end. Let us rejoice and be glad, give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, it's pretty obvious, this, isn't it? But the idea here is that the bride doesn't start getting herself ready five minutes before the wedding. Uh, if you've been a bride or if you have plans to be a bride, you know perfectly well that would be a total disaster. Apparently, they do that in Las Vegas. I, I haven't been, but I'm told they do that there all the time. People decide to get married on the spur of the moment, but with no time to prepare, those marriages are desperately sad affairs, and they almost always end in disaster. And you know in your own experience that if you wait until the morning of the big day before going out to choose the dress or book an appointment with the hairdresser or buy the flowers or buy the cake and all the rest, if you leave it till the morning of the big day, well, it's not going to go very well. And in our passage, we're talking about the greatest royal wedding ever. We, the church, are the bride. How are you and I to make ourselves ready? Now, let me tell you, this is going to surprise you. Because, first of all, we're going to see that as the bride of Christ, we make ourselves ready by persevering in our witness. Just look ahead to verse 10, just beyond the end of the passage Michael read. John says there, At this I, that is John, fell at his feet, the feet of the angel, to worship him. But he said to me, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, who hold to the witness to Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus, the witness to Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. Now, friends, one of the ways that we prepare ourselves to meet Christ at this tremendous wedding at the end of time is by witnessing now, by sharing our faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a very important clue in verse 8 that underlines the point. The end of verse 7 says, His bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, Fine linen bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. 
Now, I want to show you that wherever we come across this fine linen or white linen in the book of Revelation, it's actually a reward from Almighty God for faithful witnessing. So keep one finger in Revelation 19 and turn back, please, to chapter 6 and verse 9. Turn back to chapter 6 in your Bible, please, and verse 9. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony or witness they had maintained. Verse 11. Can we see verse 11? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So can you see these people had maintained a faithful witness to Jesus at the cost of their very lives. And in heaven, they're given a white robe as a reward. Let's have one more example. Turn back again, please, to chapter 3 and verse 18. And the letter from the risen Christ to the church at Laodicea, which, as you know, was rather lukewarm and had gone off the boil. Revelation 3, verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. Now, why does Jesus advise these Christians to buy white clothes from him? Well, it's because they weren't witnessing. How do we know that? Well, because of the way that Jesus introduces himself in verse 14. Talking about himself, Jesus says in verse 14, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. You see, Jesus is reminding them there that he is the faithful and true witness, and he wants them to follow his example. And although we won't uh, look at it again now, you can look it up later, but we find exactly the same thing in the letter to the church at Sardis at the beginning of chapter 3. Well, I wanted to show you all that because as we read chapter 19 and verses 7 and 8 come back there now, there doesn't seem to be much about witness in those verses, it seems a bit vague. And yet when we stand back, when we look at the book as a whole, we find that white garments are a reward for persevering in our witness. So then, if we ask, what are the righteous acts of the saints in verse 8? Part of the answer is, those acts include and involve witnessing. That is one of the ways that we prepare for this wonderful wedding at the end of time. Now, we all know that it takes a great deal of preparation to organize a wedding. And in order for the big day to be a tremendous success, there are certain things that have to be done well in advance. 
One of those, of course, is the wedding announcement. Uh, When Gillian and I got engaged, we put an announcement in the newspaper. Uh, I guess these days the announcement normally happens online. However you do it, the point of the announcement is to let people know that the wedding is coming. And then there's the engagement ring, isn't there, which is it's a reminder to the couple and to everybody else that the wedding is coming. And then nearer the big day, well, there might be a bridal shower and uh, perhaps a party for the groom and the groomsmen, which is yet another way of telling people the wedding's coming. All of these things are, in a sense, an expression of the love that the couple have for one another, and they want people to know how excited they are about the big day. Now, don't you think it would be really rather odd and unnatural if they didn't do that? If there was no announcement, no ring, no bridal shower, no groomsman's party, and people just carried on as if absolutely nothing had changed. Well, friends, if you're a Christian this morning, then you and I are engaged to Jesus Christ. The wedding is coming. And it's going to be infinitely more wonderful than the most brilliant royal wedding you've ever seen. So don't you think it would be rather odd and unnatural not to tell other people about it? And yet, of course, there are countless people in churches today who never think about it. And that's desperately, desperately sad. Because here, in Revelation 19, witnessing is very clearly linked to being engaged. We should want other people to know about the wedding. We should be telling them how wonderful Jesus is so that they have the opportunity to be at the wedding themselves. So the question I think for us this morning is, are we preparing ourselves for our wedding by persevering in our witness in the various different ways we can? Not only in what we say, but by the way we live our lives. That's the first thing this morning. But then there's another way that we as the bride of Christ prepare ourselves for the big day. And that is by getting to know Christ better. So when your friend tells you that she just got engaged, and you say to her, that's marvellous, what's the groom like? It would indeed be pretty strange, wouldn't it, if she said, well, actually, I haven't got the slightest idea. Uh, I'm sure he's terribly nice, but, you know, I'm really rather busy at the moment. So I've decided to leave all of that to the last minute. Well, it's obviously a ridiculous illustration. But but don't you know Christians like that? They come to church, but if you told them that they're engaged to be married to Christ, well, they wouldn't have the slightest idea what you're talking about. And yet, you see, God has chosen the most intimate of all human relationships to illustrate the intimate relationship that he wants to have with us in eternity, in the life of the world to come. And you and I 
how to start preparing ourselves for that intimate relationship now. How do we do that? Well, we've seen part of it is witnessing, but it's also getting to know Christ much better. And God has appointed some very simple and straightforward ways for us to do it. For a start, this is what church is all about. And I say that getting to know Christ is a community project. It it happens as we gather together with brothers and sisters on Sundays, or in the home group in the middle of the week, uh, or in one-to-one. But it's not only that. We also get to know Christ better as we spend time with him on our own reading his word, learning to obey his commandments, depending upon him in prayer, doing that every day. Now suppose for a moment that a couple get engaged, but uh, during their engagement, the groom has got to go overseas on business. Uh, He's going to be away for quite a few months as part of his job, and his uh, fiancée can't go with him because they're not married yet. Now, um, what do they do? Well, they use all of the means at their disposal to communicate with each other. Uh, These days, of course, that means, I suppose, WhatsApp and Zoom and Skype and email and so on. This couple would surely use all the means at their disposal to talk to one another and to grow in their love for one another during their engagement. Well, in exactly the same way, Christ, our groom, is not here in the flesh. He's in heaven. But he's given us his word. His word is his love letter to us. And the more that we read it, the more that our love for him ought to be growing. And as we read it, you and I ought to be opening up our hearts to him and responding what he said to us in his word. George Muller was uh, an evangelist who established a number of orphanages in the 19th century. He's perhaps best remembered as a great man of prayer. And yet to begin with, he found prayer really, really difficult. His habit was to start each day in prayer before reading the Bible, but it just seemed like His prayers were sort of bouncing off the ceiling. So after about 10 years, he changed his morning routine. And he began by reading the Bible and praying afterwards. And when he did that, he found that prayer came to him actually quite naturally. In his prayers, he started rephrasing the scriptures and praying them back to God. He started by thanking God for his marvelous promises to us in the Bible and asking God for things which God has actually pledged himself to give his people, not things he hasn't pledged himself to give his people, and praising him for everything God would do in the future. Well, the Apostle Paul pictures our relationship with Christ as an engagement. You might want to jot this verse down. Because in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Paul is addressing the Christians in uh, Corinth, and he says this, 
I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you, in other words, I betrothed you, I engaged you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, it's no accident that still today in Greece, the word that they use for the engagement ring is actually the same word that they use for a down payment uh, or a pledge or a first installment. And that's really appropriate because our engagement relationship with Christ is only the beginning. There's lots more still to come. Now, you know that when a couple get engaged, the man gives his fiancée an engagement ring. And when he does that, what he's doing is promising that when the marriage relationship comes, that he will be the leader, he will be the provider, and he will be the protector. And in exactly the same way, Jesus Christ has given us an engagement ring. I wonder if you know what it is. This is really interesting. The New Testament says it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, same word as engagement ring. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, Paul says that God has given us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a deposit, as a down payment, guaranteeing what is to come. And so the Holy Spirit now is beginning to lead us. He's beginning to protect us spiritually. And he is beginning to provide for us. But there's much, much more still to come. Because Jesus Christ has absolutely committed himself to us. He's died for us. He's taken our sins on himself. But when he returns, he's not only going to redeem us spiritually like he has in the past, but he's also going to redeem us physically with a new body and will come into a perfect, intimate relationship with him. But friends, in order to receive what he's promised then, you and I must remain faithful to our commitment now. If we break that commitment, we won't actually receive our full inheritance. In fact, I think the Apostle John would say what the rest of the New Testament says, which is that those who break their commitment to Christ were never truly engaged to him in the first place. So, brothers and sisters, we need to persevere faithfully in our witness and in our fellowship in the local church and in Bible reading and prayer. Those who don't do that may be able to convince themselves they're engaged to Christ, but in reality they never really were. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus famously says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them,
plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, evildoers. I think John and Jesus together would say to us this morning that if you want assurance that you are a believer and that you are engaged to Christ, well, act like one. Persevere in your witness, in the word, in prayer, and in obedience. But is all of that something that any of us can actually do on our own, in our own strength? Do we actually have it within us to live godly, obedient lives by our own efforts? Well, I think Revelation 19, verse 8, answers that question for us. Look at it again. It says, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. What's he saying? It's saying that God prepares us to be the bride of Christ by giving us good works to do now and also giving us both the desire and the ability to do them. And the reason I say that is because a literal reading of the last part of verse 8 goes like this. Listen carefully. Fine linen stands for acts putting right the saints. Let me say that again. Fine linen stands for acts putting right the saints. In other words, there's a double meaning going on here. It's not simply talking about our righteous acts. It's also talking about God's act of putting you and me right with himself. So I find it helpful to imagine the believer wearing two layers of white, clean linen like I am this morning. The inner layer is God's gracious work of putting us right with himself through the death of Christ. And the outer layer represents the things that we do for Christ, witnessing for him and so on. And the reason that we're able to do that is because God first did his righteous work in us. So these righteous acts that we do, the, the, the outer layer of clothing, demonstrate we are saved people. They show that we belong. Again, if you've been a bride or you've got plans to be a bride, uh, when you get engaged, what do you do? You make a very careful search, indeed, for the wedding dress. Uh, you took tremendous trouble over it. What is the point of the dress? It's to show off the full splendor of the bride. And when the big day finally arrives, the bride puts on the dress an hour or so before the wedding. And there's a tradition in Western culture that the groom is not supposed to actually see the bride in her wedding dress until she comes down the aisle. Isn't that right, Michael? Perhaps that tradition comes from the idea here that the, the groom, who is Jesus, won't actually see the bride until she is ready and in her full splendor. And here verse 8 is telling us that it's 
Only at the end of the age, when Christ returns, that the bride is going to be properly dressed and ready to meet him. Because in the meantime, we're all busy preparing for the great day. And specifically, we we prepare ourselves to wear those white robes then by living godly lives now. And it's as we do that that we demonstrate to ourselves and to other people that we have been put right with God. Let's clear up another mess. Does this mean that we can, in a sense, earn our salvation? That the outer garments are us doing part of the work and the inner garments are God's work and that somehow together we cooperate in our salvation? No, it doesn't mean that. Because look closely at verse 8 again. Have a look at it. Verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. The clothing was given. She clothes herself, but the clothing was given to her by someone else. So I suggest that Revelation 19, 7 and 8 is reminding us that salvation is all God's work from beginning to end. First of all, he prepares us by giving us the gift of faith. And then he also gives us good works to do. And then he gives us the desire and the ability to do them. And then God rewards us with white garments of salvation. So I do commend these verses to you. They are a marvelous encouragement, aren't they? But verse 9, where we end, leaves each one of us this morning with a very important question. Come with me to verse 9. Can we all see verse 9 in our Bibles? Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now, friends, if you've heard the gospel... And if you've understood it, and you have realized that Christ Jesus died for you very personally, you have received your personal invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the proof that that has happened in your life is that you will be preparing for the wedding now. But this morning, I just want to give the last word to the Lord Jesus. And uh, I invite you, therefore, to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 22. Uh, This is a story Jesus told that underlines what we've been saying this morning. And he says it, of course, infinitely better than I ever could. Matthew 22 verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner, that my oxen and fattened cattle have already been butchered, everything's ready, come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. 
Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. Those I invited didn't deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now, pay very close attention. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Friends, you see, through the gospel, God has done absolutely everything necessary to secure a place for you and me at the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And there is enough room for everyone. But in order to get in, we must be wearing the wedding garments that are the reward for living a godly life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God God has given us both the desire and the ability to do that. But the question for us this morning is, what am I doing about it? Am I growing in my relationship with Christ through Bible reading and obedience and prayer? Am I persevering in faithful witness to my unbelieving friends and family? Or am I actually far too busy ever to get started? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the relationship you want with us is as permanent and exclusive and intimate as marriage. Please help us to encourage one another to make ourselves ready now for the great and glorious